Brooklyn's Radio presents Surrey Bookcase with Patricia Jones. Hello, I'm Patricia Jones and welcome to the Surrey Bookcase here on Brooklyn's Radio. My guest today is Tony Earnshaw. Tony, welcome to the Surrey Bookcase. Thank you, nice to be here. Tony lives in Dorking and is a poet, librettist and playwright whose plays have been performed on the Edinburgh Fringe, at the Charing Cross Theatre, the Mill in Guildford and at the Theatre 59E59 Off-Broadway. But today he's going to talk about his debut novel, Blessed Assurance. Tony, after your successes as a playwright and poet, what made you decide to write a novel? Well, it's always been an ambition to write a novel, um, but actually this one rose out of a play. I wrote a play called Blessed Assurance a few years ago, and one of the theatre directors that I showed it to, um, a guy called Trevor Danby, no longer with us, sadly, who used to run rep at Leatherhead, he said to me, these characters are really interesting, I think they've got good backstories, why don't you write a novel about it? So I started the novel about the backstories of the characters in the play, and it's, it's grown from there. I believe part of the novel is set in the southeast. Yeah, we've got uh, the, the North Downs features quite strongly. Uh, you probably recognise places like Leatherhead and Dorking, although they're not um, described as such. And we've also got uh, two of the characters uh, born and brought up on um, the Sussex coast uh, in Goring. Tony, would you like to read us an extract from Blessed Assurance? Sure, I would, yeah. I think probably the best thing to do is to read... Um, the first part of the book is written in the first person in turn by the four main protagonists. And so if I read a little bit from each of the four, that will give you a flavour and introduce you to the characters. And what I should say is that two of them, Anne and Eliza, are sisters, and Tom and Pete, the guys, are friends from childhood. Um, they end up as two couples, but the road to that and afterwards is not straightforward. So first, Anne. Your average vicar, black leather shoes, grey trousers with cycle clips, and an old jacket over the clerical shirt and collar. Typical entry into the room, too, arm full of books, cycle helmet dangling from one finger, and an advance warning of his presence in the shape of a hummed hymn tune, if a hymn tune can be said to have a shape. Assurance, Pete's favourite tune. There were those who felt that dividends might be more appropriate, but no such tune existed even in Anglican circles. To be fair, Pete was hardly diffident in preaching the gospel, just in his dealings with other people. For some vicars, the distance created by robes and pulpits is a key advantage of the job, one of the perks, if you like. A reminder that here is a man set apart, a man who can be forgiven a little social ill-ease. Not that they're all like that. Take Tom, for instance, Pete's oldest friend. Another vicar, I know. It's London bus syndrome. Nothing in sight, and then you can't move for them. Story of my life. But Tom, Tom is something else. Confident, relaxed, attractive. Yes, I know, I'm married to Pete, so I clearly thought he was attractive once. Still do, to be fair, but Tom draws the eye. Tall, well-proportioned, with a twinkle in his eye, dark hair turning to grey, and presence. So it's charisma more than attractiveness, I suppose. Charisma in a secular sense, I mean, though he did flirt with the charismatic church for a while, part of his journey of faith, as he calls it. That's one thing he and Pete have in common, a love of cliché. A love of me, too, once, as I said, like London buses. So why did I choose the diffident one, 
the one who struggles with personal relationships, likes to hide behind the priestly robes. And I did choose Pete, I chose social awkwardness. I chose someone who thought he'd found the truth over someone who wanted to spend his life looking for it. I suppose that really I just found Pete's foibles endearing and endearing was more attractive than charming. So moving on, we come to Pete. Very conscientious Pete and given to making lists. Pete. I sometimes think Tom believes sermons write themselves. Maybe his do. Mine are hard work. Tedious sometimes. Not something that comes naturally, public speaking. Odd for a vicar, I suppose. But if you're caught to share the word, as I am, then you have to do what it takes. The latest thing is to keep a journal. Where to start? Maybe I could just list my attributes. One, honest. Two, vicar. Three, married to Anne. Three points. All you're allowed in a sermon. You can cheat by using sub-points, though. So, one, honest, partly due to A, personality. B, upbringing, Yorkshire, where bluntness is valued. C, faith. D, inability to be anything else. Two, vicar, C of E, St Matthew's, Betcham. B, converted in teams, called soon after. C, Bible-believing, not inerrant, which I take to be unrealistic, but true to the gospel, which is logical and sound. Three, married to Anne. A, student romance, come good. My second, no, third, serious girlfriend. B, happy. Emotions, not my strong point. Certainly not compared to Tom. I have a habit of comparing myself to Tom, not a good habit. C, Anne went out with my best friend first, but chose me. Made me feel good, if a little insecure. Best friend in question is Tom, clearly. D, no children, we couldn't, painful, but close to nephew and niece. Tempted to finish there, call it a day. I'm not even sure I should be writing about me. It seems a bit self-indulgent, a bit removed from the death to self that I preach from time to time. Of course, Tom was the catalyst for this, as ever. He's recording and intending to share. I'm reserving judgment, waiting to see what happens. Of course, his basic premise is interesting. Tom's ideas tend to be. Dangerous sometimes, subversive. Snares for the unwary, but interesting. This particular idea is probably okay. Forge friends, four journeys of faith. A phrase I like, but Tom hates. And a later contribution from Liza, who is not writing anything down, but using voice recognition software so she can just talk. So, here we are again. This is great. I can just talk. Like having a shrink. Or one of those things that great men of letters had. You know, like Boswell, Dr. Johnson, and a menu thingy. A menuensis, that's the thing. Anyway, here I am, coffee in hand, laptop at the ready, sunny morning, talking about me. God, does that sound self-obsessed? So where had I got to? Late teens and foundation year. God, what a time. This is one of the embarrassing bits. My sultry period. Thought it was sexy to pout a lot. Yes, all the S's. Sultry, sex, substances. How much detail to go into? I was a wild child. But do I want to say just how wild? Don't know. Perhaps I'll just go for it. Edit out any bits I think are too much after. I think the sixth form was my favourite bit of school. More freedom, you know? Wear what you like. Well, not quite, in my case, but near enough. More of an equal relationship with teachers. Too much so, in some cases. I, I remember snogging David Jones, the French teacher, in the cloakroom at a Christmas party and enjoying the notoriety. He'd be fired today, of course, but no one seemed to bother then, and he was gorgeous. 
One or two people sat to watch him. He had a different sixth format every year, but I just said, I snogged him. I'm not jumping into bed with him, unfortunately. He was after me all the time after that. Never told Anne she'd have gone mental. Dangerous game, I suppose, but I thought I was in complete control and I didn't want to jump into bed with a teacher, even one as drop-dead gorgeous as David. I was getting what I wanted in that department from Billy Harrison. So we move on to their college years and let Tom pick up the story of when he and Pete met Anne, which was the beginnings of the foursome. Tom. It seems odd to be talking about Anne like this after all these years, but away from the crowded pub, what shone through was her unique mixture of caring sensitivity and common sense. She was so grounded, still is. Look at the four of us now. Take the Kerry House four and substitute Liza for Kath and what have you got? Pete, very precise, list-oriented, emotionally constrained. Liza, very out there, extrovert, arty, big-hearted, temperamental. Me, governed by ideas and feelings. And Anne Rocksteady, looking after us all, the cornerstone. Of course, she's not perfect, as we will no doubt see. When she strays, the ripples spread, but she's still the cement in our lives. Doesn't sound very glamorous, but she was very beautiful. Still is, in my opinion. They're a beautiful family. Anyway, that evening I was entranced. Kath was a pretty girl, full of fun. Pete was in good form and seemed to be coming out of his post-Jane depression and Anne sparkled. The wine flowed, the food was good, and I felt on top of the world. Pete managed to make a list of ten reasons for eating curry, nine reasons for drinking wine, and eight reasons for going for the madras instead of the vindaloo, before we moved from the getting-to-know-you stuff to philosophical arguments. Both girls were a little surprised that Pete and I had ambitions to be ordained, we had callings, vacations, whatever. The life of faith was outside their experience. A life without faith was outside mine. It was left to P to had experienced both to mediate. With all the enthusiasm of the convert and all the particular character traits that make him Pete, he was soon drawing diagrams and flowcharts to explain the Trinity, the fallen redemption and the history of Israel. Fortunately, it was a curry house with linen napkins, so he was restricted to the paper in his pocket, or he might have had to resort to force-feeding him vindaloo to keep him quiet. What did come out in that discussion, somewhat to my surprise, was the difference in motivation between Pete and me. The girls were pressing us on why we were so set on the church as a career. My answer was to do with ideas, truths, the search for meaning, all the things which fascinate me. Pete's answer was to do with saving people. Never thought about the difference before. He feels responsible for everybody, always has. If they don't get to heaven, it's his fault for not hunting them down and preaching at them or for not preaching well enough, or some other failing. Me? I'm not convinced it's any of my business. I'm interested in connecting with God, the divine, whatever you want to call it, and I'm interested in sharing that connection with anyone else who wants. The whole evangelistic bit feels a bit controlling to me and doomed to failure, not to mention riddled with holes. Now, in case you're wondering, we did talk about lots of other stuff, uni gossip, bands, hometowns and so on, the Beatles or the Stone, Hendrix or Clapton, Ginger Baker or Buddy Rich. We all, as I remember, had a ball. Thank you, Tony. You've given us a tantalising taster and a good introduction to your characters. Now, where can we obtain your book? Well, it's available now on Amazon um, and um, also on Barnes & Noble and the e-books on iTunes. And you can also get it in Book Potato in Leatherhead at the moment. And I'm talking to Waterstones. Yes. 
And now that blessed assurance is on its way, have you any more projects in the pipeline? Yeah, I've got a, a blessed assurance related project, which is a dinner theatre, which will be in the White Horse Hotel in Dorking on the 10th of October, which will be a dramatisation uh, with music, which my band will provide. Um, my play The Door, which is um, the one, one of the ones that's done the rounds, the New York and so on, is going to be on at the Mill Studio, hopefully in Guildford um, in February. And I'm two-thirds of the way through a political comedy, um, although you might think that um, politics is enough of a comedy without a play. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Tony, have you any advice to the listeners of the Surrey Bookcase on uh, about following their dreams to become writers, poets or scriptwriters? Yeah, I think dreams are made to be followed. I've always wanted to write. I had a, a long career in the city and decided to um, make it possible to, um, to, to move and shift emphasis, and I've not been sorry for a moment. My guest today has been Tony Earnshaw. Thank you, Tony, for coming on the Surrey Bookcase here on Brooklyn's Radio, and we'll certainly look out for your novel, Blessed Assurances. Now the summer holidays are here, and ever since one year I had a huge disappointment because of traffic problems and failing to pick up a book at the airport, I now plan my holiday reading with great care and consideration. I do possess a Kindle, but on the whole I prefer to turn actual pages. So here are some recommendations for summer reading. Whether you're on a stay vacation or away from home, either in the UK or in distant parts. You couldn't do better than take along a copy of Sweet Sorrow by David Nichols, an astutely observed nostalgic book about first love and that long summer on the cusp of adulthood. You might have already had a taste of it, as Sweet Sorrow has recently been serialised on Woman's Hour. Victoria Hyssop, Those Who Are Loved, once again ticks all the boxes of brilliantly researched historical fiction, bound up in family sagas and once again set in her beloved Greece. Another historical drama can be found in Naomi Wood's third novel, The Hiding Game, a story of love and obsession set in the Bauhaus during the turbulent years of 1920s Germany. Now, last year, no suitcase was complete without the wonderful A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Towles, which was one of my book club's all-time favourites. But this year... The one to pack is Tara Jones, An American Marriage, a masterly telling of wrongful conviction and simmering racial tensions in the Deep South. If you love thrillers, Beyond Reasonable Doubt by Gary Bell is for you, and I found it hard to put down. A seemingly respected barrister who has, has it all, but in fact is an utter fraud. After years of getting away with his elaborate lies, the past come back to haunt him. Now, if your holiday involves a long, cold flight, you may care to lose yourself in Marcus Uzak's A Bridge of Clay, a family saga of loss and redemption which moves from Eastern Europe to Australia and reads like a dream. And I think that you enjoyed it very much, Tony. I was completely gripped by it. I thought it was a masterful uh, book. It, it wrapped together the Australian experience and the Eastern European emigration experience and it had that sort of unreliable narrator in the middle which was just wonderful. Yeah, I'd really recommend it. Now a new novel by Michael Ondaatje is a thing to cherish as Warlight is a gripping account of two children abandoned by parents and cared for by an array of shady characters in London during the Second World War. 
and Barbara Kingsilver never disappoints. An unsheltered looks back into American past in a contemporary story of a family's attempts to retain their dilapidated house. One of my favourite books this year is The Salt Path by Raina Wynne, an inspiration lyrically observed memoir on the regenerative power of walking in nature, as well as a reminder that material things are much less important than we sometimes think. If you love the landscape of the West Country coastline and are drawn to the philosophies of mindfulness and minimalism, this is a moving, reflective book to read during a break from your everyday life. I really did enjoy it and thoroughly recommend it. Don't think that children's books are a hiding place. They are a seeking place. The slow place of a holiday is the ideal time to recollect on the reason why you fell in love with books and reading in the first place. So, if you're visiting the Lake District, remind yourself of the innocence and enchantment of childhood through Arthur Ransom's Swallows and Amazon series. If you are up for a good murder mystery, reach for I Never Tell by Catherine Mackenzie. After their parents' sudden deaths, five siblings reunite to decide what to do with the family's property. But before they can, they have to figure out what happened to their friend Amanda, who was found bludgeoned to death in a rowing boat 20 years ago. Now we watch the protagonist jump into new adventures and eat, pray, love. But the latest novel by Elizabeth Gilford takes a look back at the past. Vivian is now a 95-year-old woman and she finally shares her love story from the 1940s. It's a combination of lust, scandal and fun. And another novel you won't be able to put down. Online Goodread reviewers are already calling The Most Fun We Ever Had by Claire Lombardo one of the best books of the year. Set in 2016 with a series of flashbacks, we learn about the unparalleled perfect relationship between Marilyn and David. And while their love story is idyllic, their four daughters haven't had such luck. Their individual storylines comes together show how complicated it is to love those closest to you. Now, along with a lot of people, I'm a great fan of, si- of Graham Simison's Rosie books. The Rosie Project is set in Australia, where Don is a genetic professor who just might be somewhere quite high on the autistic spectrum. Don looks a little like Gregory Peck and is getting married. He just doesn't know who to, but he's designed a very detailed questionnaire to help him find the perfect woman. And it's definitely not Rosie. Rosie, meanwhile, isn't looking for love. She's looking for her biological father. Maybe Don can help her. Sometimes, though, you don't find love. Love finds you. At the same time, the book is extremely funny, but it's also very touching. And it's one of my favourite all-again reads. There is a follow-up, The Rosie Effect, and just released the final instalment, The Rosie Results, which will be part of my summer reading. There's also an audiobook, The Rosie Project, read by Dan O'Grady. For my own summer reading, I've just started Queenie Malone's Paradise Hotel by Ruth Rogan, which the Sunday Express describes as lovely as a burst of bluebells. Please don't be put off by this, or by the stripy cover, as I've rejected it twice before picking it up, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's very funny, 
and it's very deep at the same time, and it makes you think. A friend has recommended The Widow Watcher by Elizabeth Maxwell, as has The Puppet Show by M.W. Craven, as a fast-paced detective crime fiction with strong characters with a predictable, unpredictable twist. I've advised to put my life on hold until I've finished it. So it looks like the rest of August is taken care of. Tony, what would be on your reading summer reading list? Well, I think the three that I would um, recommend are um, Bel Canto uh, by oh. Anne Pratchett, uh, which is very uh, telling exploration of the hostage situation and the relationships which can grow within that. Um, and if you like a thriller, um, A Long Night in Paris by Dove Alfon, I think that's how you pronounce it, it's an, a, a, an ex-Israeli um, secret agent. And the third one, which is very different, uh, set in the Napoleonic times with uh, a member of the cavalry, an officer in the cavalry, trying to uh, make a new life for himself, is called Now We Shall Be Entirely Free. And that's a very sensitive and evocative uh, description of the consequences of war and also of how relationships can grow in unlikely situations. Well, I've only read one of those, which is the Bel Canto, and I would thoroughly recommend any of Anne Patchett's books. Yeah, yeah wonderful. They're writer. absolutely wonderful reading um, and so, so different. Um, please try them. Um, maybe I can do a programme all about her. <laughs> thank you, Tony. And I'll be adding blessed insurance to my summer list. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Surrey Bookcase here on Brooklyn's Radio. And I said thank you for Tony, my guest today. This is Patricia Jones. Enjoy your summer. And whether at home or away, or wherever you are, make sure you treat yourself to a good, captivating book. Goodbye. You've been listening to Surrey Bookcase with Patricia Jones on Brooklyn's Radio.